Welcome back to Camp 8. I'm Kyle Gill here with Eli Sagor. Eli, you've been gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, have you been on vacation or something? Yeah. Yeah, we took a family road trip, which was uh, really a lot of fun. You know, it's it's um, we did a fair bit of thinking and hand-wringing about, you know, uh, can we do that safely? Should we just stay home? And we decided, no, we think we can do it safely. We all got, um, we were able to get COVID tests and uh, the purpose of the trip was to visit with my folks. We wanted to be real careful about, um, you know, not putting them at risk. Uh, but boy, I'm glad we made the trip. We had a lot of fun, a bunch of time in the car, which is uh, not the worst thing, and visited some interesting places and um, had, had a really nice uh, vacation and nice time away. Nice. What about you? What's, uh, what's, what have you been up to? Um, I've been, I've been keeping on, keeping on at work doing, we're prepping for a virtual tour of Bulldogs behind the scene. We're not officially administratively connected to University of Minnesota Duluth, but their alumni association director asked us if we would want to do a virtual tour. And so that'll be where we've collected a bunch of video and now we're putting the narrative together and, uh, and going to stitch those videos. So I've been doing a lot of drone video and on the ground video review and trying to help put pull together a, a cool virtual tour product. Uh, but I've also been using the local forests for getting away from work as well. Um, I've been, uh, yeah, there's a ton of forest in, around the Duluth area and in the Northeast part of the state. Um, and I like to enjoy that with mountain biking and running. And especially lately, I've been liking exploring and finding local swimming holes so it's been hot and humid and you can just sit down there and cool off after a, a good bike or a run um, but that, that reminds me i was going to ask you eli when knowing that you had been on vacation what do you like briefly what would you say is the importance of stepping away from work for you well i think you know uh i think it's important for a variety of reasons i you know i want to be able to bring my best game when i'm at work and uh, you know, it's no fun to be one dimensional. I think it's important to get away. It's important to use different part of our parts of our brains. It's important to explore the world a little bit. Uh, and, and sometimes it's important to, you know, have an identity away from work and, you know, all of those things are, are important. And, uh, you know, I feel good. It's, it's always a slog to get back through the backlog of work when you get back to the office, but I, uh, you also bring a little bit more energy to it. And, I, I like that. I think it's important to, uh, you know, to, to get away from time to time. And you have something big on your agenda now that you're back at work, right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we just started yesterday, NASP, the National Advanced Silviculture Program. This is a program that is usually a two-week in-person um, uh, event at the Cloquet Forestry Center. We offer it to Forest Service employees from around the country. And, of course, this year, we wouldn't have chosen it, but we're doing it all via Zoom. And so you mentioned collecting and organizing field video for the uh, Cloquet Forestry Center open house that's coming up online. We're doing the same thing. So I've been traveling up to Marcel, the Marcel Experimental Forest, um, and to the Cloquet Forestry Center and to a variety of other locations, shooting video and turning all of that into what we hope will be, um, you know, useful field instruction, a little bit different, not quite the same as walking through the woods together. Uh, but but that'll be a useful addition to um, to this you know national program. So 
Um, that's also got me using a different part of my brain, which I enjoy. I, I sure am looking forward to being able to do these things in person again. Uh, don't get me wrong, but yeah. Hey, but what's really, what, do. what I found is really cool in prepping for this virtual tour, and maybe it's been the same for you, is the constraint of not being able to be in person means that we can focus on totally different things. So yeah. for instance, we can use drone video. And so we can give a tour. I've been putting some yeah. drone videos up on my um on a YouTube account because it's it's such a fun way to experience the forest, being able to fly below the canopy and then be able to pop up above the canopy. And um, I think there's, uh, we're always looking for new ways to help people experience our, our forests. And I think uh, the constraint of meeting remotely has offered some, um, some good insight into how we can potentially be rethinking how we're communicating with uh, stakeholders. You know, Kyle, and we think a lot about accessibility and uh, yeah. some of my extension colleagues and I have been thinking about that and the virtual tours. I mean, again, they're, they're not a perfect replacement, but you know, we've heard from a number of people who are just thrilled to be able to watch a virtual tour because they might have physical limitations that they um, didn't have in the past or, or for whatever, maybe they just live a long way away and couldn't have come in person. And they're just really grateful um, to be able to participate. And, and, you know, we're glad to be able to offer that experience. So, yeah, you're right. I think it's important during this era to, you know, to be thinking it's, it's easy. We're all very mindful of the things we've lost and we're all eager to get them back. But, you know, the, the, these, cre these limitations on what we can do have, as you said, also created some opportunities and, you know, things are different uh, right now. And, and, um, but but there are some silver linings and there are some interesting things. And I think we're all learning and growing as we uh, move through this too. At least that's the hope. Yeah. Um, as you all may have figured out, we're uh, I'm taking the lead on this episode because Eli's been gone for a couple of weeks. And I had the chance to conduct a five questions with a Forrester interview with uh, today's interviewee. And you'll learn more about her and her career. And she, she delves into the importance of working across boundaries and getting various uh, opinions and from different stakeholders and I think that's a little bit of what we're talking about um, here is that that creativity comes sometimes when we're forced into it and it's important to work across boundaries in order to look for ways to adapt and improve so without further ado so who are you and who do you work for as a forester thanks Kyle uh, my name is Patty Thielen, and uh, currently I'm not working as a forester. My, my current role is for the Department of Natural Resources. I am the Northeast Regional Director, so it's the Northeast nine counties in Minnesota, and uh, my job crosses over all of the Department of Natural Resources divisions. So besides forestry, fisheries and wildlife, uh, lands and minerals, ecological and water resources, um, uh, enforcement. Uh, so we, we do a lot of different things and um, it's been a really exciting opportunity for me the last three years. Uh, my career with the DNR will be 25 years as of this fall. Um, the first 22 years I did work in a forestry division. Um, I started as a, a new entry level forester up in Bidette and uh, I worked my way through a series of three levels of professional forester positions. And I was the area supervisor of the Bidette forestry area for the last five years that I worked up there. Um, Bidette was a really amazing 
place to live and work. Um, it was a little further away from the Twin Cities than I originally intended to go. Um, although that was one of my uh, intents with uh, learning about forestry was to uh, get out of the Twin Cities. Um, but it, uh, I, I learned a lot. It was a really great opportunity to work on large expanse of, of public forest land, um, DNR forest land in Lake of the Woods and Kuchiching counties. Um, and I had a lot of really great experiences up there, both uh, uh, at work and, and uh, in the uh, uh, walleye capital of the world. Um, about uh, almost 10 years ago, I took a job down in Grand Rapids um, as the assistant regional forest manager and uh, did that for a, a few years and then was the regional forest manager, again, for the Northeast nine counties. Um, and three years ago, the commissioner's office asked me to um, take on being the regional director. And uh, it was really an exciting opportunity for me. Again, uh, um, my, my work has probably a, an internal component to the DNR with um, working with the seven divisions in our regions, um, working with the commissioner's office, being a kind of a liaison between our regional managers and the commissioner's office, um, kind of working to keep our divisions all on the same page. Um, sometimes the, the missions of our aren't completely parallel to each other and, and we need to figure out uh, um, how to all work together. Um, find they, the right balance to attain all of our missions. They are or they are not parallel to each other? Uh, they're, they're not always completely parallel to each other. Um, so that makes our job very challenging. Um, spend a lot of, lot of time uh, communicating <clears throat> updates from our region to the commissioner's office, as well as communicating from our department leadership to the, the regional managers. And the, uh, I think there's about over 700 people that work in the Northeast region in DNR. It's a, it's a pretty uh, big, busy place with natural resources. Yeah. Um, another big piece of my current work is working uh, externally, um, meeting with county boards, um, different, different groups like uh, NCLUB, the Northern Counties uh, Land Use Coordinating Board, um, a group of counties that have a lot of public land, not just DNR land, but, but Forest Service land and county land, new national park land. Um, and so that's uh, uh, something they have in common is having a lot of public land. The Joint Counties Natural Resource Board, uh, are the counties that have consolidated conservation lands in the county. Um, those lands were uh, taken over by the state back uh, in the, the early part of the um, 20th century when some ditching projects didn't work as intended to uh, um, do more agriculture across the forested part of Minnesota. Um, and the counties couldn't afford to pay the ditch bonds because uh, um, they didn't have the, the agriculture moving into the county the way that they expected to. 
And so in agreement for the, the state taking over and managing these lands, um, the county gets of any receipts from any timber sales or, or other uh, dollar producing activities that we do. Um, sometimes meet with the Minnesota Association of County Land Commissioners. So uh, I think there's about 12 or 13 counties that have land commissioners like uh, Greg Bernou, who you talked to a few weeks ago. Um, working with the federal agencies like the Forest Service and National Park Service, um, natural resources staff of tribes. So doing a lot of outreach with a uh, group outside of the department. How do you feel like um, that your background in forestry influences your approach to this uh, position that oversees all the divisions that are in theory working towards the same goals, but obviously they have their own internal division goals as well. You mentioned that they're not always in parallel. How do you feel like your background in forestry has influenced how you, uh, how you lead across division lines? Well, uh, in the eastern part of the state, this is, this is the most heavily forested region in, in Minnesota. We've got four regions for the Department of Natural Resources, and um, we manage the most forest up here in the Northeast. Uh, I think I've always had um, a fairly broad perspective with, with looking at the values that we're managing for. And um, I think having knowledge based from my education and experience in forestry um, added to, I spent a lot of time working with, with people in our divisions um, the field forester and and learning things from them as I as I uh, moved through my career. So I think just a lot of the different pieces that I, I picked up along the way. Some of my personal interests, um, you know, I, I like bird watching. I I like grouse hunting. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I like to do have made me want to learn more about things outside of forestry um, that I try to bring in, into my work now. So you mentioned that in your regional director position, you're not technically a forester, but obviously you came up through the ranks as a forester and was trained as a forester. So uh, what does it mean for you to be a forester and what inspired you to follow that career path that has led you to your current position? Well, in uh, I was in about my mid-20s um, when... Uh, at about the same time, I graduated with a degree in philosophy, and no, I don't know what I was going to do with that. Um, I also got laid off of a full-time job I'd been working for a few years, um, and it was probably the the luckiest thing that could have happened to me um, because that that put me out there. I, I was looking for jobs, and I, I realized I I wasn't. I, I didn't have the skills to do anything very interesting. And uh, I had really enjoyed college. Um, it, uh, it took me a couple extra years to graduate more than it does most other people. And um, so I started looking around at, at other college programs and I stumbled across the University of Minnesota College of Natural Resources, now CFANS, a College of Food, Agriculture and Natural Resource Sciences, I think. Um, and I wasn't, ex I wasn't exactly sure what part of natural resources that I, I wanted to, um, learn a lot more about. It, it just, 
it felt like, wow, this is really cool. This is, this is something I want to learn more about. Um, and I, at the time I, I was also kind of developing, having grown up in the twin cities, I was developing a desire to move out of the twin cities, um, hopefully somewhere up North and, um, you know, probably, uh, also pretty interested in, I'd rather wear hiking boots and long johns than, um, heels and nylons to work every day and get to go outside at work. So, um, you know, I, I started taking some classes from the College of Natural Resources, kind of a variety of classes. And um, the more classes I took, the more interested I became in forestry. Um, I'll, I'll admit that uh, probably initially uh, when I started taking classes there, <clears throat> um, timber harvest probably had negative connotations for me. Um, but the more I learned, the more I understood that, uh, you know, the value of good management, that, that this is an important thing that uh, allows us to have um, really important things in our lives from uh, the, the lumber that builds our houses to our dining room tables to um, the paper that, that we use. And uh, while we could, uh, I, I think I, I was starting to understand that forest management can be a negative thing if it's not done the right way. And I thought, this is, this is really cool because this is something that can try to help do the right way. And there's a lot of different right ways to do it. Um, but I, I just thought this is, this is just everything converging. I get to work outside. I get to do science. Um, and I, I get to do something that, that I value and, and makes me feel like I've uh, a positive thing. So I, uh, I I took some more classes and and ended up uh, focusing on on forest management and um, took a did an internship up in uh, Grand Marais for a summer that that really helped solidify things and um, dove in. That the background in philosophy must really have influenced uh, your ability to work across the division lines and to um, to influence that, to see the value of all those different objectives and that idea that there's not just one right way, but maybe many right ways. Would you say that's based in, in that background in philosophy that you had, or is that just an approach to life that you've kind of always had? You know, I think that has helped me in in how I think about things um from there's a lot of there's a lot of different uh fields of philosophy from logic ethics to um uh some some history and philosophy of science and um i think you can you can pull a lot of those things into natural resource management uh i think they they help me look at things in a, a, a relatively um you know, neutral manner, kind of weighing everything out. And uh, I, I think that that background did help me uh, in, in my career. So uh, what does, um, let's, I'm going to, this will be a two-part question, I guess, because I want to get a better idea of uh, what you do on a daily and seasonal basis. And uh, obviously, as a regional director, that's different than when you were uh, a boots on the ground forester. So maybe 
maybe first tell us what does being a forester look like for you on a daily or seasonal basis currently as the regional director and then maybe reflect back on um, what uh, being a forester looked like for you in one of your positions, uh, prior positions where you were technically a forester? Sure. So right now I, I don't get to get out in the field very often anymore. Um, you know, my, my field in, you know, we're, we're uh, doing a lot of things right now because of COVID. Um, so in, in, uh, you know, BC before COVID, uh, probably my field a lot of times was, um, you know, instead of driving down gravel roads to the forest, I'm, I'm driving uh, down freeways and highways to uh, um, get to different meetings, to uh, get down central office in St. Paul and, and meetings with commissioners. Um, and uh, probably right now, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I do a lot of the same things without the travel. So um, most of us in DNR are still primarily working from home. Um, and uh, so I, I attend a lot of meetings over my computer. Um, I'm also checking in with uh, the people on my team, the regional managers of the divisions in Grand Rapids, um, checking in with them regularly on the computer. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, I've, I've honed some technical skills over the last few months uh, in figuring out how to, how to meet with people and, and what are the best ways, you know, I, uh, I, I'm more accustomed to walking down the hall to go talk to somebody uh, and, and ask them a few questions. And now I feel like I have to send them an instant message to even ask if it's an okay time to call. middle so something. Um, and so that's, that's been a, a bigger challenge. Um, it's, it's been challenging to, um, occasionally have to turn down right now meeting with, with some people externally because, uh, as state employees, we work for the governor and we are following the governor's executive orders very closely and, and making sure that we're, um, staying within the boundaries that Governor Waltz has, has defined for us. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time on my computer, um, a lot of time both internal and external meetings right now, um, and uh, a lot of time in this room. <laughs> So um, if I, if definitely I- Definitely different well, than, the, uh, than the average day just five months ago. <laughs> It, absolutely, absolutely. It's very different. So talk about what it, uh, what it looked like on a daily or seasonal basis to be a forester in one of the positions uh, prior to being a regional director. Well, I think uh, um, one, of, one of my favorite things about working in forestry was there's a, a lot of different things that foresters do. Um, I think uh, um, those, those change seasonally. In, in the spring, everybody's working on, on uh, wildfire suppression. In the summer, trying to do field work where you need the, the plants to be able to do that work. So, so um, native plant community surveys and things like that, forest inventory and re regeneration checks um, where little tiny trees, you can't see them if the snow is deep. And so trying to do the work during the summer that, that can't be completed at other times of the year. 
Um, fall, of course, is a beautiful time to spend in the forest. And then winter uh, tends to be timber season. Um, but between the variety of, of things that happen throughout the year seasonally, there's just a lot of other opportunities to be doing different things. And so if you're tired of doing something one day, um, if you're managing your work well enough, you can usually decide you're going to do something else the next day. Uh, you can you can uh, try and I always recommended that people um, have have work prepared sufficiently so when it's going to be a nice day, you can go work outside. And then if it's raining, well, that's a day you maybe catch up on some data entry and things on your computer so you're not having to uh, traipse through the woods in your rain gear. Miserable. Um, I think, uh, you know, just the variety of different work that foresters do from um, planning, planning timber harvest to planning regeneration uh, to talking to kids about uh, natural resources and forestry. Um, and that there's just different things going on all throughout the year. A few, uh, many years ago, I when I worked up in Bidette, I remember, uh, um, oh, our, our, most of the people in our office had, had worked with, uh, I think, the third grade to go plant some trees in an area adjacent to the school for Arbor Day. And it was kind of a fun event. And a couple of weeks later, um, I had the opportunity to um, take Smokey Bear and one of our fire trucks over to the school. And uh, we saw, I don't remember if they were Girl Scouts or Brownies, but um, some of the girls were some of the same kids that we had did trees with a couple weeks before. And uh, one, they were, we, we let them uh, squirt water with the pump cans and we let them squirt water with the hose and they got to shake hands with Smokey Bear and all that good stuff, but had some time just for questions. And, and one of the girls asked, asked me, uh, you know, what else we, we saw you two weeks ago when we planted trees, what other things do foresters do? So talking about, you know, managing for sex and disease and, and looking for those problems and planting trees and, and doing forest inventory and working with our partners in the wildlife division and fisheries division in planning out our work. Um, and another little girl asked me, do you have to pay to be a forester? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, you know what? They pay me to do this. And the whole group of girls just went, no. And uh, I, I continued and, and explained, you know, you need to, uh, you need to pay for it in advance a little bit because you need to go to college and uh, get the right kind of degree. So you need to have good enough grades to get into college in the first place. But uh, once you do all that, they pay me to do this. And they thought that was the, the coolest thing. And um, you know what, that, that made me realize I got a pretty cool job. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, the variety and the yeah, different people you get to work with and the time alone. It's such a, uh, an interesting mix uh, being a forester because there's so many different things that come into what influences uh, what a forester is thinking about when it comes to what they're doing for their job on a daily basis. Right. Uh, that's a great anecdote. Do you have to pay to be a forester? <laughs> uh, uh, so you just shared a really memorable uh, um, 
moment of uh, public outreach, uh, what would you say is your favorite or most memorable prescription or project that you've either developed or or implemented and why? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I have a tough time coming up with a, a favorite prescription, but um, one, of, one of the memorable experiences that I had early in my career, I think I'd probably been around for a couple of years, and I was asked to lead um, the old growth evaluation data collection process for my forestry area. And so while I was a pretty new forester, having only been around a couple of years, um, it, it gave me the opportunity to um, plan out all of the work that needed to be completed across the area and delegate work to all of these guys who've been um, foresters for many years and um, lead a project. And, and uh, it was really interesting work to do. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, doing that project kind of, um, I, I must have done it well enough that my name kind of stuck with, with old growth for a while. Um, I think uh, several years later, there was a, a project to try and update all of our forest inventory databases to reflect the old growth that had been designated. And, and so I was asked to, to lead that project in making sure all of the forestry areas in the state um, got that work done. And and uh, a few years later than that, I was um, one of the teams I was on for, for quite a few years was our forest certification implementation team. And um, we had a, a corrective action request that had to do with old growth. And so I was asked to lead the response to that. So I got to work on that over the next year. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed collecting the old growth evaluation data too. It was it was just kind of nice, nice work. A lot of it we were doing during a, a season where there weren't a lot of bugs out and, and uh, there wasn't snow yet. So nice time to be outside. Um, I remember one old growth evaluation in particular. It was um, a large number of stands that were on both sides of a river. And I think they probably, my memory, they, they were it was about a mile and a half or two mile stretch of river with stands along both sides in the riparian area. And because it was so much work, we decided to team up. Normally there were two people that worked on an old growth evaluation. Um, we decided to have two teams. This took a lot of logistics. We had to um, share sets of truck keys, et cetera, but we had one pair start on one side of the river at the West end and the other pair start at the east side of the river uh, or on the north side of the river at the east end. And then we each just traveled the mile and a half, two miles of taking plots through stands. And then we each had to cross the river to get to the other truck. Um, it was, uh, or actually I think four wheelers. I, th I think I used to call it the old growth triathlon because we drove about 20 miles to get to where we were starting and then took four wheelers to get as far as we could and then did a couple of miles on feet to collect the data. Um, and so it took a lot of logistics to get all that planned. And then towards the end of the day, this was in late October, we'd had some early cold and um, some of the river and some of the, the oxbows that were no longer a part of the river, but 
they were still water, um, had about an inch and a half or two inches of ice on them. And uh, the wildlife uh, biologist I was working with and I decided to take a shortcut across the ice and kind of tiptoe very carefully across. And uh, he went first and I went second and I made it almost all the way to the other bank before the ice broke. And uh, I went in, um, not quite to my shoulders, but definitely well above my belly button in the water. Uh, I remember that somehow I took the radio I was carrying and kept it out of the water. And uh, so the, the guy that I was working with came back to, to help me out. It was a pretty steep bank and, and it was up a couple of feet from the surface of, of the water. And he reached down to try and help me out. And somehow he ended up down in the oxbow too. Um, so we were both wet on a pretty cold day with uh, uh, about three or four plots left to take. And uh, as long as we were moving between plots, we were fine, but stopping and standing still to collect the data, um, get pretty cold when you're uh, soaking wet. So that was a, a pretty interesting experience. I was excited to get home that night and uh, take a long hot shower. Was was swimming part of the uh, the old girls triathlon, or is that a new <laughs> thing add, a new discipline to yes, add? It was. <laughs> Didn't know I needed to carry a PFD out in the woods, <laughs> or an inflatable canoe, or something like that to get across. Uh, mm-hmm. What stemmed, uh, do you recall what stemmed the uh, um, impetus for doing those old growth surveys when it came down? So you said that you led it at the, at your, uh, not at the region level, but must have been at the, your area, your work area level. Um, what was the push from the state level that, where they decided to um, better document old growth areas? I think they had actually been um, beginning to do some old growth evaluations um, even in the few years before I started working for DNR. Um, But I I think the department uh, determined along the way that we needed to take a look and and probably protect some of the, these valuable legacy areas um, that had not had um, much human impact yet. And, and kind of, you know, what, Although Leopold always said, make sure you're, you're keeping all the pieces. So um, it was, I, th- I think it was in about 1996 or 97 that the department decided, okay, we need to finish evaluating areas for old growth and then, um, you know, make some final decisions. And so that was, that was the process that I started when, when I think the department uh, probably decided, okay, we need, to, we need to finish this and wrap this up here. So not necessarily something new, but something that they had started and, and needed to wrap up. Was that also kind of a, um, I wonder if it was stemmed out of the general environmental impact statement that happened in the mid-90s that then led to the uh, Forest Management Guidelines book for M- from MFRC? It sounds like about You know, it, it, it was at about the same time, and uh, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm not certain what exactly uh, was was the starter for it, but that, that could very well be. I think at the time there was, in the early 90s, there was getting to be concerned that timber harvest was increasing and uh, that maybe we need to make sure we're protecting these areas uh, in case that continues to increase. Um, it didn't continue to increase. 
um, but we've got the areas protected. And probably a uh, one of the um, inventory updates, right? Because those seem to always go in waves. And I, I think that was one of the big things that came out of the recent uh, billion cord study, right? Is that there's trying, we're always trying to improve ways of doing inventory, right? Because it's easy for our stand inventory to get out of date. Would that have been kind of an uh, inventory push as well? Just saying, hey, we think we have these old growth stands out there, but we're not exactly sure. And so maybe it was one of those inventory pushes. Um, you know, I, I, there's, it seems like every, every several years, there's a big push to uh, better update our inventory. Uh, I remember when I was uh, trying to help come up with, uh, you know, language that, that we might be able to use in, in uh, getting additional funding for more inventory. And uh, I was, I was, I had realized that some of our new younger foresters that we were hiring right out of college were younger than some of our forest inventory data. <laughs> and uh, that was a sign. <laughs> when, when your foresters are younger than your data, that's a sign that, that maybe you need to update it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation that could happen, but we'll, we'll leave that for now. <laughs> um, what, what would you say have been your bi- biggest successes and challenges during your career? You know, I think uh, one of one of the biggest challenges working um, both in forestry and and in my current job as the regional director um, are are balancing values. Um, in in the Northeast, we've got a lot of school trust lands that that you know lead towards some particular kinds of management. Uh, we manage con con lands. Um, we have a lot of the public and a lot of different users that uh, want different things and and we're not able to do everything on every acre. There's, you know, recreation interests and there's um, people interested in wildlife habitat and there's people interested in um, the economics, the timber value. Uh, even, even within each of those categories, there's often a lot of conflict with, you know, in recreation, you've got uh, motorized versus non-motorized. Uh, I've I've heard about conflicts where uh, some uh, mountain bikers aren't aren't happy about people walking on their trails. No, these are mountain bike trails. You can't walk here. Um, and uh, same for for wildlife. You know, um, managing for grouse, managing for goshawks might might look a little bit different. Um, and so we can't do everything on every acre. And so trying to find the the right balance of of all these really important values is has has always been a great challenge. Um, on the other hand, I think when um, when we can find the right way to do that, that finding that right balance, solving that really really challenging logic puzzle, um, can can be one of our biggest successes. So when we can um, find ways that we're um, managing for for all of those different values uh, in the right way at the right amount. Um, it's it's really rewarding and tremendously satisfying to be a part of that. Is there a project in particular that you're thinking about when you talk about turning those challenges into a major challenges into a major success? So um, a little bit ago, you you mentioned the uh, 
the analysis of, of whether the department could harvest a, a million cords. And I think the data that we worked through um, using a, a consultant gave us some information, but, but didn't tell us exactly what to do. And so um, the department had used the information that, that came out of the analysis to determine what, what, what the right level was. And um, so working within the, the um, work level that the department settled on and, um, you know, trying to still make sure that we're measuring or managing, um, it, you know, it's like 4D because it's, it's not just spatially, but temporally to make sure that we have all the right kinds of pieces out there um, to be able to support um, the different kinds of habitat and, and uh, different, uh, you know, protecting riparian areas. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging logic puzzle, but uh, I think we have really, really great foresters. We've got great wildlife biologists, uh, great fisheries biologists and ecologists that all work for the department. And uh, um, it's, it's exciting when we can find the right, uh, the sweet spot. Definitely. Uh, do you have any wrap-up thoughts on the questions that were asked or other, other wrap-up thoughts? Well, I, uh, I guess I, I just, I've been, the, the last 25 years for me has just flown by. Um, I, I can't believe I, I will hit 25 years a little later this year. Um, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet and work with a lot of really fascinating people. And uh, so I guess um, from our natural resources and excited to see what is still to come. Well, thank you so much for being willing to share your story and some of your philosophies. I think there's uh, a lot of wisdom in there that uh, we all are going to be able to learn from. And thanks for uh, serving the state and uh, your region in your current position. Thanks, Kyle. Nice talking to you today. Thanks again to Patty Thielen for being willing to be a part of this uh, podcast. I know she was an early listener that helped us with some directions early on. And so it was really fun to get a chance to talk with her and learn about her career uh, through the five questions of the Forester interview. Eli, what were some wrap up thoughts from you? What were takeaways? I just, I'm a big Patty Thielen fan. I'm really glad that you uh, had her on your list and called her up. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, what makes her such an interesting person came through. And, uh, and part of that was that she's a really thoughtful person who's who represents the Department of Natural Resources very well. She's in an interesting role in in that regard. Um, but I, but also just she's just funny. She's just fun to listen to. I, I love the idea of the old growth triathlon uh, that may, she may not have intended for it to include swimming, but <laughs> uh, but that did. Um, uh, I also I also got a kick out of her comment that she decided that she'd rather wear hiking boots and long johns than heels and nylons. I can relate. I feel the same way. And, uh, and I, I thought that was great. I, I really enjoyed, um, uh, he, you know, hearing your conversation with Patty. Uh, what stuck with you, Kyle? Yeah. Thinking of the great little anecdotes and stories that she shared, I think especially fun was when talking about working with third graders and getting a chance to see a couple and they just had this idea like, do you have to pay to be a forester? Yes, and they were shocked, shocked to hear, no, I actually get paid to do this. So <laughs> uh, yeah, that was just a great, that was a great anecdote. I think on like a, a little bit more 
um, broad topic, not just the anecdotes. I think in her current position, she talked about um, the importance of working across division boundaries and balancing multiple objectives. And um, that for me, I think maybe because I did this interview a couple of weeks, maybe that influenced a little bit of my thinking over the past couple of weeks has really been uh, about the importance of diversity and working across uh, disciplines and across cultures and um, all these things that have been, I think, definitely in the public sphere right now. I thought Patty did a really great job of of highlighting the importance, not only as a forester, of knowing the importance of multiple ob- objectives and being able to listen across boundaries, but how she's then be able to, been able to grow her career. Because this was something that she saw early on in her career, she's been able to grow within the DNR to a position that specifically um, represents multiple divisions and represents multiple stakeholders. So I thought that was um, a really important thing for uh, for a, a really important takeaway for me was the importance of working across disciplines. Um, and more locally, we've this last couple of weeks, why, why this has probably been on my mind too, is that um, if you remember back, I think it was episode three, we interviewed Claire Bowrichter uh, about her work, creative nonfiction writing work in um, Camp 8. And she was up for another week of interviews and archive photo collection, stuff like that, all done at um, socially distant, all done in socially distant ways, of course. Um, so that for us as the Forestry Center, I've been really been enjoying how working with her and, um, and other people that aren't necessarily in the discipline of forestry, um, how that stimulates broader conversations and broader ideas and, and, creativity in general. And that reminded uh, me, I think in ecology, we talk about ecotones a lot, and that's where one ecosystem transitions to another. And uh, I I think of, in ecological terms, um, ecotones being this place where all the mixing happens and things are forced to adapt. And I think that's a decent analogy to the importance of of diversity and working with diverse groups. and, um, And working with Claire has definitely uh, encouraged us to adapt and think differently, so to speak. And um, yeah, that's a local, a local way that I've been um, thinking about working ca- across boundaries. Something again, a, a take a longer answer to this is my takeaway from the interview with Patty is that importance of working across boundaries. Yeah, um, she really she really covered that really well. And you know, we think of silviculture as an art and science, and we talk about that, but at least I feel like we spend a lot more time on the science part than the art part. And and I, I have really enjoyed working with people like Claire from time to time too, because uh, she's really about creative expression. She sees mm-hmm. the forest in a different way uh, from the way that I normally see it. She expresses things. You know, she's able to communicate in ways that um, I can't. And I just learn so much. I find it so uh, enriching and, 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 just fun to spend time with creative people like that and people who see the world a little bit differently. Yeah. Another really cool collaboration that's been going on here is with Karen Lutsky. Uh, she is a landscape architecture professor at the university of Minnesota and she's um, in the design is totally in design focused mentality. And she's working on this project on our Esker, which is a kind of unique geological feature around here or geographic feature around here. And she's, 
um, doing data analysis, which is really different than our, our civicultural data analysis to say, how can we make this, ask questions about how can we make this a feature of the forest and how can we find the view sheds and the soundscapes and uh, work with the, the trees that are there and potentially manipulate the forest. So thinking about what you said about civiculture being art and science, uh, working with Karen has been awesome because she's really encouraged uh, the art, definitely the art and design side of how to view the forest. And I'm excited to see where that project goes. Any other wrap up thoughts as we reach the end of our time here this week, Eli? Uh, not really, just uh, really enjoying these conversations. It's fun to hear from people like Patty about, you know, how they see the world of forestry and, and related fields. And uh, I, I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed hearing that. Yeah, likewise. Well, you all will hear from us again in a couple of weeks and NAS will have just wrapped up and, uh, and it will be August. The time flies uh, as always. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.